Romans chapter 14, we're going to be covering verses 1 to 23. I titled this morning's message, The Weak and the Strong. And let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you uh, for this time to gather. Lord, I thank you for the time to worship. Lord, I thank you that you receive worship from us, even in all of our failures and our sin. Lord, you still, Lord, desire, Lord, the praise of your people. You desire us to, to come before you in repentance and to, to cleanse our hearts, to get our hearts right, and to, to freely worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for this church, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit upon us afresh this morning, that we would leave this place, Lord, closer to you, challenged in our faith. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We started this practical section of Romans back in chapter 12, talking about relationships. Relationships are really a foundation of our Christian faith. Our relationship starts this way with God, the day you gave your life to Him. Our relationship also then expanded within the church. Now we have these brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have all of these relationships that we maintain here in the body of Christ. We have relationships with those that are not Christians, those that are outside of the church. And we are given instruction on how we're to handle those relationships. We have and been called to a relationship with the governing authorities, those in higher power over us. How we are to respond as Christians to the governing authorities. And then we also have our relationship with our neighbor, as we looked at last week, that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. It's all relational. But we come to this 14th chapter of Romans, and we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul that we also need to treat the weaker brother in Christ, or the weaker sister in the Lord, we need, to, uh, we need to treat them in wisdom. We need to treat them in love. We need to maintain that relationship with one another, whether we are weak or whether we are strong. We're called to minister to one another. As Christians, we're called to liberty. This chapter, in a sense, it, it speaks about the law, and it also speaks about liberty or freedom that we have as Christians. Some Christians, and this is what I've learned, they, they, they tend to lean more towards the law. Sometimes that law or that leaning towards the law can, can lead to a Christian walk that is legalistic. Maybe some of you have found yourself in that place. 
And other Christians, they walk in freedom and liberty. But even that freedom and that liberty sometimes is an excuse for sin. It leads to compromise. And and I, I think that somewhere in the middle of that, there's the balance, isn't there? We don't want to be legalistic, but we don't also want to take liberties that would cause us to stumble ourselves into sin. Paul writing to the church at Galatia, and these were churches that were in this region of Galatia, this is what he said to them. In Galatians 5.1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That yoke of bondage is the law. You see, we've been set free as Christians the day you gave your life to Christ. That should cause rejoicing in our hearts. But don't go back. Don't return to that bondage, to that legalistic way that maybe you used to approach God or approach other people. In the same chapter in Galatians 5.13, we read this, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like what we read out of Romans 13, doesn't it? Romans chapter 14 and even going into chapter 15 It deals with the area of gray areas. Do you know what I mean by gray areas? You know, those questionable things that many times Christians sit and they try to to figure out what should we be able to do as Christians and not? What are the gray areas? What are the things that are not specifically spoken of in Scripture that we sometimes debate and have struggles with understanding what would God have us to do or not do? And even in that, it has caused contentions within the body of Christ. Paul writes in the opening verse of this chapter, the first two verses, he says this, Receive one who was weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. In chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, look what it says. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now this word scruples, if your translation reads that way, scruples are an error that rises in our minds out of our weakness or our lack of understanding about some of the truths of God's Word. And so these are the scruples of the weak. But we're called as Christians to support those that are weak in their understanding. 
In other words, to come alongside them and not to take those things that maybe we have come to learn and to create a division. They're amongst things that we call gray areas, things that we can't really be real definite or clear on. Or at least in their mind, they're not. Now, Christians often disagree upon how they should live. Uh, During the time that Paul was writing this letter to the Romans here, uh, there was Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. Different cultures, different backgrounds of the the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, The the Jews, they had their special holy days that they knew from their law in the Old Testament. They had dietary laws that they were instructed in. But the Gentiles who never lived under that law These special days and these diets, they didn't see them as a requirement. And so, what do you have? Conflict. You have people with different views. Do we hold to these dietary laws and these special days still, or do we not? Paul's stance was, whatever your conviction is, When it comes to these matters of gray areas, whatever your conviction and your conscience tells you, then you should do it until God shows you differently. That's how we should respond to these things. But we also need to be careful as Christians that we don't offend those that don't have the same conviction as us. In other words, these gray areas... Uh, some people have a conscience about them. It it, it bothers them when they think about these particular areas. And we come in with our opinions. And we come in saying, well, yeah, but that's not what, you know, and, and we create strife and a division. Paul says, let those that have this conviction or this conscience that they shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that, Support them in that conscience. But what about the things in Scripture that are very clear? What about the things that we would not call a gray area? Well, we know that God says that going out and having an affair is sin. We know that sex outside of marriage is sin. Getting drunk is a sin. You know, and we as Christians, we quite often judge those things. How is it that we can judge those things? Because God has already declared that they're sin. It's not, a, it's not open for opinion. God already said so. And so we don't have to go into that mode of thinking, well... You know, I'm judging. You know, you're judging me. You know, even though maybe they're doing something that directly violates the written Word of God. It's not that I've said it, it's what God's Word has said. But Christians often find themselves struggling in these areas of gray areas. You know, should a Christian drink alcohol at all? Should alcohol even touch their lips? Should Christians gamble? 
you know, play the lottery? Should they, they go to movies or should they go out dancing? You know, the five bad things, you know, you, all these things that Christians sometimes struggle. Should Christians work on Sunday? You know, should Christians have TVs in their house or watch TV? You know, the list goes on and on and on of all these areas that we might call the gray areas, the questionable things. And some feel they have the liberty to do them, and some say they don't. But we also need to be careful as Christians that we don't fall trap to a false humility. Paul spoke of that in the book of Colossians in chapter 2. He said, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, the head is Christ, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now there are lots of people and people within religious circles and within church that sometimes come off with this kind of false humility. There were also those teachers of the day that were going out and teaching people that by not doing this and not doing that, that it has this religious religiosity to it that it is actually what God wants and what God expects. And it actually makes you look even more religious. He says this false humility that people can have. This self-imposed religion. It has this appearance of wisdom before people. But there's also a danger in unjustly judging people. It happened in Paul's day. It happened between Jew and Gentile. This judging of one another. But I have to say that it happens still today in the church in various ways. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, he says, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not concede to the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. And then he says, you hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so we're cautioned as Christians not to be so quick to judge when we haven't yet done a self-examination. 
looked at herself first before you're trying to pluck that speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day in John 7, 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And you see, there is a righteous judgment. There are things that we can call sin. There are things that we can call out that are clear in Scripture, that are obvious to us. But it needs to be righteous judgment. It needs to be after there's been self-examination before we are quick to judge our brother. In chapter 14, in verse 4, look at your Bibles. Paul says this, Who are you to judge another servant? Do you see he's asking a question there? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. In other words, God is the one who will establish the strong and the weak. We don't need to separate ourselves or, or just give our opinions to people that will lead to separation. God's able to do that. And God will do that. We can, in other words, we can leave it up to God. I don't need to take on every gray area that somebody might pose to me and have my opinions that could stumble them. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. But why do you judge your brother? Asking a question again. Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. We all need to examine ourselves. We all need to realize that the ultimate judge is God himself. And that we're all going to stand before that judgment seat someday. I believe that the answer to, and I've shared this already, to all relational struggles that we have in life, all relational struggles, is fixed by having sincere love for one another. Sincere love, and we, we already looked at it in Chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul said, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't be hypocritical about the kind of love you express towards others. In verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In chapter 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. In verse 10, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And then in chapter 14, verse 15, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. You see, it's all fixed. If we would just let God's love 
be at the center of all of these things. That we would just, in every relationship, in every situation, if our motivation is love, you'll go a long way. Christ's love in you. We might say that chapter 14 and 15 is the true test of our love for one another. Look at verse 1. Paul says that we are to receive, or your Bible might read, we are to accept one who is weak in the faith. But not to dispute over doubtful things. And I would say that that's speaking about those gray areas that I've been talking about. Not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, that's me. But he who is weak eats only vegetables. And you can answer that one. Paul begins here to get more specific about the things that Christians were, I believe, debating about in the early church. And they still debate about them today. But let me uh, start off by saying that what Paul is talking about here in these first two verses, he's not talking about having a debate about nutrition. He's not talking about, you know, the whole gluten-free thing. You know, the GMO-free, organic and non-organic. You know, carbs and no carbs. He not, he's not getting into that kind of a debate. That's not what was going on here. We're not talking about nutrition arguments that we could have amongst one another. It's the question really about, it's not even really the question about eating meat or not eating meat. The question that really was arising in the early church had to do with meat that was sacrificed to idols and whether or not we should partake of that meat as a Christian. You see, the Greeks, they would offer up portions of their meat or on, the, on their sacrifices to their gods. And then they would take the balance of that meat and they would take it into the marketplace and they would sell it. And so then you would have these Christians that would go to market and they would buy this meat and they would take it home to cook it. And there were some Christians that were okay with that and there were other Christians that were struggling with that because in their mind this was offered up to some pagan god and here we are now cooking that meat and partaking of it. And that violates our conscience of what God's law says. That was the difficulty that was arising here in the church at Rome. The church at Rome had all of these different cultures that were in it. When all of a sudden the Gentiles got saved and then you got Jew and Gentile together with different cultures and different people from different backgrounds, it was creating a whole lot of just confusion of what we should do as Christians. How we should handle these situations. To the Jew, they thought of the book of Leviticus. Where 
all of these things in regards to what kinds of things we should eat, the restrictions that were upon food, they're all listed there in Leviticus chapter 11 in your Bible. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. He said, Speak to the children of Israel and say, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the face of the earth. Seems real simple, doesn't it? But he goes on and he gets real specific with Moses and and he begins to tell them the kind of animals that we could eat and the kind of animals that we're forbidden to eat. And one of those animals he says that he shouldn't eat was the camel, the rock horax. You know what a rock horax is? I don't. The hare, the swine. He says the swine, and he says these are unclean. Their flesh to you you shall not eat, nor shall you even touch their carcass. That was the law that God had given to Moses. And then he says, their flesh you shall eat not, and their carcasses you shall touch not. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the water. And he says, those things that are in the water, we call them fish. He says, if they have fins and they have scales, then you can eat them. And I immediately thought of Steve. It's okay, Steve, you can eat fish. You know, because it tells us right in Leviticus here, you know, you can, you can eat those things with fins and scales, right? That's good. And whether they're in the sea or in the river, so ocean fish, fresh water, you can eat them. But all that is in the sea or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they're an abomination to you. And so we think of shrimp and we think of all these other kinds of things. Whatever is in the water that has fins and scales or does not have fins and scales shall be an abomination to you. This was the mindset of the Jewish brothers there in Rome in regards to the things that you should eat. He talked about the birds, the things that fly. He says you you shouldn't eat eagles. You shouldn't eat vultures and buzzards, kites or falcons. You know, you shouldn't eat seagulls and hawks, a screech owl, a white owl, a jackdaw, a carrion vulture, a stork, a heron. Don't eat those things. Or a hoopoe. I don't know what that is. And then it says, and don't eat bats. I don't like bats. I, I wouldn't eat a bat. I don't like them. But don't eat bats. And then he talked about the flying insects that shall be in a body. And he gave the description of the insects that you could eat. You could, you know, you could eat locusts. You could eat grasshoppers. You could eat crickets. But there are certain kinds of bugs you weren't to eat. And it's all laid out there. That was the mindset of the Jews. And then you got these Gentiles coming in that got saved. Jews that got saved that came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Gentiles in the same church. And they go, yeah, we don't do that. You do. Yeah, we have the liberty. And then you have contention. In verse 46 of Leviticus, it says, This is the law of the animals 
and the birds and every living creature that moves on the waters and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Very clear in the Jew's mind. You see, Jews were restricted from eating pork. Uh, but they weren't restricted from eating lamb or beef. The only difference was is that they needed to be kosher. Uh, they needed to be slain and bled out in a certain way because you weren't to partake of the blood. And so there was requirements that were also listed in the book of Leviticus. You know, all of this God's doing for the protection of His people, of mankind. Certain things uh, that were, they thought might have been edible might have been a harm to them because they didn't even know how to process the food in a way that it made it edible. But to some in the early church, it was offensive. It was immoral. It was against their faith to eat certain meats. And especially those things that were offered to idols. That was the contention. We, as we look at this first two verses, like I already said, it doesn't have anything to do with nutrition. And it, and it really doesn't even have anything to do whether or not we should eat meat as Christians or just eat vegetables. It has everything to do with how we interact with one another. And I want to broaden this out to the gray areas. I don't want to just limit it just to the food, the meat and the vegetables, but to gray areas that we might find discrepancy amongst one another. I don't think that God cares either way, whether you eat meat or you eat vegetables, but he does care about how we interact with one another. The first question that I think that we could ask ourselves in this area of gray areas is this. Am I fully convinced that it's okay to do it? So if you were to write that down, and, I, and this will apply, and I've got five of them that I want to give you. You could apply this to every gray area as Christians that we say, should we do this or not do this? There's a gray area. It doesn't say specifically in the Bible, should I do it or not do it? Am I fully convinced that what I'm doing is okay to do? Look at verse 2 in your Bible. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let, him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Like today, there were those in Paul's day who were weak in faith. But let me clarify what it means to be weak in faith. To be weak in faith doesn't mean you're weak in morality. 
It doesn't mean that, that morality is the issue, but you're weak in understanding. Weak in understanding of the issue at hand. And the conflict comes up when you have the people that don't have the conscience to do something or not, and then you have the other people that just see, seem so freely to do it. Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says that the Spirit expressly says that in the last latter times, some are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We're talking about teachers coming in with false teaching, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, talking about these teachers. And then it says these teachers are coming forth, forbidding people to marry commanding them to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For every creature, listen to this, for every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and in the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. I believe Paul in these verses was warning Timothy to warn the church that there is a danger in the legalistic teaching that some of you are hearing that could actually draw people away from the gospel of grace and, and put man under this list of do's and don'ts and put him into this list of man-made rules. And you know what? I think that our flesh, actually a lot of times we like rules. We say we don't, but we like rules. We like somebody to kind of lay it out. What we should do and what we shouldn't do. But we can also get drawn into those things that can be legalistic. And we need to be careful as Christians that we don't do that. You know, not to marry and certain foods that we should eat and not eat. You know, don't get caught up into that. Paul said in verse 4, For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused. We're not limited, I believe, as Christians to a particular diet as Christians. We don't need to uh, follow some specific thing in the Old Testament, what we would eat and what we shouldn't eat. I believe that those things were given to God's people. And we're not held to them under the New Testament under these rules and regulations of, Le of Leviticus 11. Before the flood... In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God said, this is in the very beginning now, this is before the fall of man. It says, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for your food. That might be the vegetarians. After the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, 
And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on, listen to this, on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And so after the fall, I believe that God opened it up for man to partake of meat and if you want to say bugs, birds, of all those things, that man was free to eat those things. The King James actually says uh, that every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you. I have given you all things, he says, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And that's the one restriction that it goes back to about taking and eating blood. And so those animals had to be bled out. They had to be done in a particular way that God prescribed for our benefit, for man's benefit. So let's look at now, look at verse uh, three. First, there's disputes that can be how these, dis, uh, these disputes can be regulated is they get regulated by the love of God that I've already spoken about. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Or God has already received him. God has already accepted him. You see, when we start despising people based upon our own, dis- our own opinions, what are you eating that? You know, what are you eating meat for? What are you doing that for? What are you doing? You know, uh, we need to be careful that we don't unjustly judge people based upon what we think might be the right way. Paul says, if someone doesn't eat meat, then don't despise them and don't ridicule that person or argue with them to the point of bringing contention. You know, if somebody invites me over, if one of you invite me over to your house and you say, hey, I've got a a 22-ounce T-bone steak that's smothered in steak butter, I wouldn't want one of you going to me going, you know, come on, Greg. You know what I mean? And, and, and really getting on my case about eating meat. But if you're sitting there and you're eating your greens, you got your salad all loaded up with fruits and vegetables and all the nuts on it and all those things, I'm not going to sit there and judge you for not eating meat. It's like we're okay with each other. That, I believe, is what Paul is dealing with here. People eating meat or not eating meat is not the issue. It's how we deal with one another. It's how we would judge one another that's important. Verse 3 says that God has already received him. You may not receive him. You may not like what they do. You may not receive him, but God has already received him. And that's what's important. So why would we refrain from judging the weaker brother? Whether he eats or doesn't eat or what day he worships on or what day he doesn't worship on? 
And the, the reason would be our love for Him. Our love for her. Look at verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in what? Love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. In other words, let it go. You know, you don't want to say to your brother, you know, come on, have a stack of bacon with me. You know, when you know that he struggles with it, it'll grow hair on your chest. You know, just come on, there's bacon, man. We got a load of bacon here. Men's breakfast going on, you know. Come on, you know, no, I don't eat bacon. My conscience tells me I'm not supposed to eat pork. Let it go. Let him not eat pork. Don't force the issue. Don't bring contention. That's really what Paul is talking about here. If you invite somebody over to your house for a meal and they ask you, you want a glass of wine with your meal? Oh no, no thanks, I don't drink. What do you mean? You know, Jesus drank wine. I mean, why can't you have a glass of wine with your meal? And you, and you create this contention with them because all of a sudden now you're making them look bad because you don't drink wine. You ever been to a wedding? Those of you that maybe don't drink at all? And they're serving up champagne and they're patting you. Do you have anything else you can serve? Why? Why won't you drink the champagne? You know, and, and it actually becomes offensive to some. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge another, another servants? To his own master he stands or fall. Indeed, he will be made to stand, but God is able to make him stand. You see, we need to be careful not to judge one another in these areas of gray matters the questionable things. Because to his own master, he stands or falls. He stands before the Lord. And that should be good enough on our part. When a person has a particular conviction about what he should do or not do, we shouldn't try to debate it. We shouldn't try to prove to them that it's okay for them to do it. You know why? Because if they go ahead and do it and it violates their conscience and their convictions, you're actually moving them into sin. And we'll see that as we go along. Verse 5, one person esteems or he rates one day above another. Another esteems or he regards every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. There's, the, there's a debate. Should we be worshiping God on Saturday the Sabbath or on Sunday the first day of the week? Well, the early church started worshiping God on the first day of the week. And there are some churches today believe that we're violating the law of God because we worship on Sunday and not on the Sabbath. And Paul is really just saying here, every day should be alike. Every day to me, I don't hold one day above the other even though those were instructed to the Jews to keep the Sabbath holy. And there were things that were given to the Jew that they needed to observe because God had commanded it. 
Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. That's how God wants us to act upon these things that we call gray areas. Let each person be convinced in their own mind. If somebody says to you, you know what, I really feel like I need to be worshiping God on Saturday, the Sabbath. Good. Do it. If you ever came to that conviction that you could worship God on Sunday too, praise the Lord. But I'm not going to get all worked up because you worship God on, how about if I did it on Friday? Well, that's not even scriptural. How about, you know, every day could be unto the Lord. The second way that we can determine whether a gray area is good to do or not is to ask this second question. Is what I'm doing, am I doing it unto the Lord? Think about anything that you would call a gray area. Am I doing it unto the Lord? If the Lord, and Lord means master, doesn't it? Lord means master, owner, ruler. If he's my master and ruler of my life, then I want to go before him and I want to be able to say, you know, with what I'm doing, am I doing it unto the Lord? Can we say that? Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself. Did you know that? When you gave your life to Christ, you're not to yourself. You're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So as Christians, we're called to live for the Lord. The things that I do, whether they're, uh, they're questionable or not, it, 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 am I doing it unto the Lord? If we have that mindset about anything that would be questionable, then it'll affect what you do and what you don't do. If you're not sure you can do it unto the Lord, then you probably shouldn't do it. You know, if I said, hey, how many, raise your hand, how many of you had a shot of whiskey last night? Some of you may not want to raise your hand. You might go, yeah, I did, but I don't want to, you know. If you can't do it with a clear conscience, you probably shouldn't have done it. Are you doing it under the Lord? Here's another question that we could ask when it comes to gray areas. Well, would I do stand the test when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, everything that I do as a Christian, will it stand the test on that day when I stand before the Lord? Look at verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? And why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess 
to God, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. We are not called to be each other's judgment seat. I'm not called to judge you in these matters. You have to stand before the judgment seat of God yourself. And if what you do allows you and you feel your conscience that you can do that and that you would feel comfortable standing before the judgment seat of God someday with what you do, then do it. And if you don't feel and you feel this uncomfortableness inside about that, then don't do it. It's an easy rule of thumb to follow. Did you know that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God? That's not the great white throne judgment that's spoken of in the book of Revelation. That's for the unbeliever. But for those of us that are Christians, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And and God's going to say, everything you've done for me or haven't done for me is going to be judged. And there's going to be reward and loss of reward. It's not going to be whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. It's going to be what God is going to reward you for or what reward you're going to lose. And so everything that we do as a Christian in those gray areas, can I do those things and would it stand the test if I stood before the judgment seat of Christ with it? And you will. And fourthly, here's another way that we can ask a question to help us in this area of gray areas. Does what I do cause others to stumble? Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. That's the Apostle Paul saying that of himself. He says, I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, I've come to that place of understanding of my liberties and my freedoms in Christ. But that's not to say that everyone has. And if I take the liberties that I have to impose those things upon that brother that is weak in their faith and weak in their understanding, then I'm crossing the line because I'm trying to tell that person that they have the liberty to do it when they don't have the conscience to do it. A good principle to follow as I've already said, is let love guide your actions. Let love guide how you would deal with a brother or sister in Christ that maybe is struggling in some of these areas. Or maybe you think that they need to be set free from the bondage that they're in, their legalism that they're in. Let love keep you from expressing that liberty that you have in such a way that it actually causes a division between you and a brother. Let love cause you to consider the effect that your conduct will have on another person. So in other words, if I feel that I have the liberty to do this gray area, 
And I know that there are some that might struggle with that. And I take my liberty and I say, you know what? Hey, I'm free in Christ. Don't tell me what I can do and can't do. And I just simply do it out in front of people with no regard to that it may stumble them. That's wrong. I should be willing to refrain myself because I may cause somebody that's weaker in their understanding to stumble. It's a good principle to follow. One person defined a stumbling block like this. It's the setting of an example which might lead another to sin. It's your example that might lead another person to sin. And you might say, well, I'm not sinning because I have the conviction that it's okay. But that person doesn't. And what we're going to see is that if that person doesn't have the conviction, it's sin in them doing it. Even if someone, or even, excuse me, even if something is right to do, it doesn't mean that we have the right to do it. Even if it's right to do, it doesn't mean we have the right to do it. Look at verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ died. Paul knew that food in itself was not wrong nor unclean. But that doesn't mean that his fellow brother had the same conviction. Therefore, verse 16, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Your good could actually turn into something that is spoken of as evil. Something that you take liberty and feel you have the liberty to do could be spoken of by others as evil. And when we are exercising this liberty and love that we have, when we're considering that there could be weaker Christians around in faith and in understanding, and because it may be a, it may be a bad witness to them, in their convictions, and I refrain in love from doing that, you're doing the right thing. That's what Paul is saying. You see, the Christian who has his eye on eternal things, you know, the kingdom of God, he's seeking to please God in all things, even the liberties that we feel that we have. You see, this righteousness that he's talking about, that righteousness happens in love when, and, and, it, and it happens in the midst of brothers and sisters you know, doing the right thing. It's, it actually means giving to men. And, and then there's also peace in the midst of somebody that's exercising love in the midst of these, these controversial gray areas. And, and whenever that's happening, there's this state of peace that's there. There's not conflict and strife and people getting worked up about it. And there's also joy. 
And joy is making other people happy. You see, when our hard attitude is towards others and not towards ourselves, there's going to be righteousness, peace, and joy in your midst. That's what's going to come out. If you see strife and conflict and people getting all, that's not the Lord. Even if you have the liberty to do what you believe you have the liberty to do. You see, the fruit of the Spirit that we read in Galatians 5.22 is love. That's the first one. Then it's joy and then it's peace. And then all those other things come. It's actually the fruit of God's Spirit in our midst. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything, underline that, by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. We're to pursue those things that make for peace. Things that will edify one another, build one another up. And I, and I don't want to destroy, just for the sake of my own liberty, of what I feel like I can do. I don't want to destroy another brother or sister's faith that's maybe young in the Lord, young in their understanding. The last principle that we could ask that will help us in determining whether or not something is a gray area or a questionable area is in verses 22 and 23, and we'll finish with this. We could ask, can I do it by faith? Look what it says. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, I've used this principle. I was taught this principle years ago as a teenager. I was taught this principle by my grandfather, who was a pastor, and I happened to be on a lake fishing with him. And the fisherman that I am, I had already caught my limit. The limit then was 12 on this particular lake. And I had all of those 12 trout hanging on a stringer out in the lake. My wife, Kathy, was fishing with me. And I started thinking in my head, what does the law say uh, as to whether or not I could actually catch maybe another 12? Because she hasn't caught a one. And I could take her 12 and add it to my stringer. And, if a, and if, a, if a ranger came along and saw 24 fish on that stringer, which he would have, <laughs> would I be in error? Would it be wrong? 
And so I, I go up to my grandfather and I say, you know, Grandpa, I, I said, what does the law say about me catching Kathy's fish so I could keep on fishing? I have to stop right now. I mean, I don't want to stop. And you know what he said to me? He says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He says, I don't know what the law reads on that. So then it put me in a dilemma. Now I'm thinking, no, Grandpa doesn't have the answer. He's not get, telling me I can do it. If he would have said, yeah, yeah, I think you can do it. Go ahead. I would have, man, I would have been out there going for it. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And I had to put my pole up. I couldn't fish anymore. I had already caught my limit. You see, I didn't have the conscience or the conviction inside that it was okay by the law for me to catch another 12. And if we approached everything that was one of those gray areas or questionable things, whether or not a Christian should do this, 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 that whole list that I went through, and many more. And then you could just say, you know what? I don't have the faith to do it. I don't know whether or not God would want me to do this or not. I don't know if I'm violating my Lord by doing it or not. And if you don't have the conviction, then Paul says it's sin if you go ahead and do it anyway. And you say, well, the act wasn't a sin because Paul came to know that eating meat was okay. But if you're eating meat and you don't have the conviction that it's okay before the Lord, it's sin. Everything that we do, we should have this conviction of spirit and heart to know that it's of the Lord that we do it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we would just stand upon that, everything that I do to, glory God, to glorify God. If that's my heart, that's my desire, that's the rule that I go by, it'll keep you from a lot of those questionable things that we might not feel that we have the answer if it's right or wrong. If God ever gives you the conviction that it's okay, He gives you the green light, then go ahead and do it. But just know this, in all of these things, we will stand before the Lord. Have you ever been one of these? Yeah, I think God told me it's all right. Yeah, it's all right to, to go do, you know. Yeah, but I could show you something really direct and square that is wrong. You say, it's one thing just to say it's all right. Me and God are all right on this thing. But it's another thing to have a strong conviction that it doesn't violate anything that God has already told you in his word. Let me give you those five things if you were trying to write them down or maybe you'd still like to. Number one, am I fully convinced that it's okay to do? Number two, is what I'm doing, am I doing it unto the Lord? Number three, will it stand the test at the judgment seat of Christ? Number four, does what I do cause others to stumble? And number five, can I do it by faith? If we just look at that and then just and run it all through those tests, then we just go, I think I'm going to hold off. 
I, I don't know that I have uh, really the conviction or the conscience to do it. But my friends are all telling me, come on, let's go. Mm, I don't know. I think I'll pass. That's a better way to go. We have a heavenly Father and a, and a gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that in all of these things, these are very practical things that we're bringing out in this 14th chapter. This isn't a whole list of a bunch of do's and don'ts. We have freedom in Christ. Not freedom to sin. Not liberty to sin. But liberty and freedom from sin. And God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. To live for Him. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.